Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another broadcast on the Soul of America Radio. Tonight, you're listening to Hope and Healing, a journey to wholeness, with your host, J.R. Thickland. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Blog Talk Radio, hosted and produced by the Soul of America Radio. Comments made on tonight's broadcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Blog Talk Radio, the Soul of America Radio, or its host. Hope and Healing takes you from a place of pain, abuse, violence, rejection, and abandonment to a place of hope, healing, and power. All aboard with your author, activist, advocate, and friend, man of purpose himself, and your host for the evening, Mr. J.R. Diglett. And I'm so very glad that you've joined us here tonight on the Soul of America Radio Network. That's right. Each and every Monday night, you can find us right here at 9 o'clock Eastern Time, 8 o'clock Central Time, 7 o'clock in the Mountain Time Zone, 6 o'clock in the Pacific, and wherever you may be around the globe. This is where you find us here with Hope and Healing, A Journey to Wholeness. We're so glad that you've joined us because this show is designed with you in mind as we continue to deal with the issues of abuse, abandonment, violence, and we deal with whatever that have caused grief and whatever needs to be made whole. And as always, we look forward to the audience that we have and the different ones that are sharing along with us from around the globe. And it's always a pleasure to have the opportunity to address you. For those of you that may be listening for the very first time, this is Hope and Healing, A Journey to Wholeness, where we are about the platform of healing, healing and being made whole. Our platform generally deals with the issue of domestic violence and that which of abandonment and rejection and all those things. But the reality is, is that we understand that violence itself, in and of itself, is something that we must address. Dr. King said that in order for one to be truly nonviolent, said nonviolent means that you not only refuse to shoot a man, but you also refuse to hate him. So we understand there's an attitudinal belief that contributes to violence. And we have so much that we've talked about over the last three years now that we've had the show Open Healing, a journey to hold us right here on the Soul of America radio network. And we have the privilege of having had so many different guests and so many different topics and so many wonderful individuals who have been a part of this program that have been here to provide great information, to provide great uh, uh, opinions, to uh, provide great insight into so many things. So this is what I'd like to say to you today. I'd like to say to you tonight that you are part of history. You're part of things happening in such a way that uh, has impacted so many lives and will impact even more lives. And that's what we are about today. We believe that we must make a difference. We must impact lives. We believe that we have the ability, together we can achieve more, and that we can make a difference inside of the many different dilemmas 
and social ills that we face as a society and as a people. And we're very excited tonight, even about our show tonight, because of the fact we want to deal with some things that have been definitely not only in the uh, – um, circulating throughout media and circulating everywhere, but in all actuality, some things that have been brewing for a long time. We're dealing now in a time where we're seeing people that have been impacted by violence. We're seeing so much happening um, around the country as we continue to see uproars happening and protests happening as a result of of treatment of uh, individuals by police officers, as well as, uh, you know, what we call deadly force and uncalled for force. And so many different things have happened in our society. There are a number of things that are happening, have been happening here for uh, a long time. The last research I did here most recently talked about already at this point in the year that there had been over 300 shootings, police-related shootings in this country, and, uh, uh, and, 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 and many of them. If we look at the size of population and representation that we saw that disproportionately a lot of this involved black males that had been shot and killed. There are many efforts that are going on around the country where there are efforts to try to build relationship between law enforcement and citizens, where there's been efforts to try to, you know, find that common ground. And yet still we continue to see headlines that are coming as it relates to officers and the people in the relationship between police officers and the community. And so I would ask the question, can it even be repaired? We've seen the fallout of Ferguson. We've seen the fallout, if you would, of the things that have happened around the country, not just Ferguson, what we've seen happen in Baltimore, what we've seen happening all over the country. We've seen many different responses. But one thing that remained constant is that so many things here that we've talked about have been police-related and police-related shootings and whether or not they're justified or not. Even in the South Florida area, which I reside, we've had a case that have gone national with the Corey Jones case, where uh, a young man who was shot uh, by a police officer, unmarked car, plain clothes, and he was shot as he was changing his tire on the side of the road, 3-something a.m. in the morning. Actually, let me correct that. He was shot while he was waiting on the tow truck to come as his car had broken down on the side of the road. And we understand that this young man ended up losing his life, and there's been much outcry. And then we have the incident that just happened on last week, and meaning that it didn't just happen on last week, uh, uh, but the videotape came out last week of what really happened when an officer shot this young man seven, 16 times, 16 times. And what was so terrible about that was the fact that this one particular officer began to fire shots, having been on the scene less than 10 seconds. These are the travesties that continues to, if you would, open up an old wound. Old wounds that the people are still saying, why? And it caused quite an uproar, and the protest continues, and the protest will continue as we fit, because of the fact that people are now saying that some of this is just not only uncalled for, but a lot of this here has to be addressed. Or it looks as if the people are being held in the blind. And so I want to deal with this just a little bit today. I want to deal with both of these cases here in a little bit, the case there that involves 16-year-old 
let me make sure I have his age right here, uh, that involved a young man there from Chicago, Laquan McDonald, I believe the name was, with the young man. This police officer uh, now facing a first-degree murder charge, if you would, uh, for shooting this team for 16 times. Now, there's a lot to catch up on with this, not only what has happened, but what has happened as far as whether or not this guy has been uh, made bond or not. And we want to talk about that in just a little bit. And I'm always glad that when I'm talking about such subjects as these is to have my distinguished colleagues and friends that are on as our guests tonight. And I want to invite to the show tonight um, definitely our friends and colleagues that we've had in time past on our show to help us really navigate and grab a better understanding of what's going on here as it relates to uh, the relationship of police officers and the community at large. Are those relationships getting better or are they growing further apart? And I, as I said in, in uh, past time, we've had a tremendous guests with us, and definitely um, I think uh, these voices here lends a lot to the subject matter. Uh, I think what you hear here is not just rhetoric. I think you will hear some uh, sound, uh, some sound, um, principles, some sound solutions, and not only that, I think that we're going to hear um, the voice of those that understands the fact of where people are at this hour, and I think it's very important to do so. And so what I want to do tonight, and as I get ready to, as I get ready to bring them on the air today. Well, I did not know that was coming on, but it is on. I have no idea what that was, uh, the case as it relates to that and a particular story, and I don't know how that happened, but I'm quite sure our president uh, there, uh, Mr. Stallings, uh, will definitely make that available to us again there, that clipping there. But in the meanwhile, it looked like we lost uh, uh, Chief Blow and hopefully a call back, but uh, in just a moment, I want to bring on our two guests, none other than our distinguished friend and colleague, Dr. Annette Douglas, and and, and we're going to also have joining us here um, definitely Deputy Chief, uh, former Deputy Chief Michael Blow. So I want to give a great soul of America welcome to the both of us. Well, good evening, and welcome to the show. How are you tonight? Well, thank evening. you. Thank you for the great welcome. We're great. Well, That's so, a wonderful I'm, Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I hope that you both had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And uh, we're back on this side here. I actually had an opportunity, at least we did, uh, my wife and I and family there, to be in your area, your former area, at least there in the greater D.C. area. I even had a chance to go over to uh, Silver Springs, I believe it was. Is that it? Silver Springs, Maryland. Maybe I have it wrong, but uh, we had opportunity to uh, spend a few days in that area there. And, uh, you know, and even as we were away, this story continued to make headlines and continued to be talked about. And I think that is great. And I, I think definitely, um, um, uh, Chief, uh, I, I think that there's a lot to be said. I mean, at what point do, at what point do the people feel like their cries falling on deaf ears? And at what point, how do we measure the fact, have we made any progress? And, and if we haven't, why haven't we? Well, I think, in, and, and first off, good evening, and, and thank you for the holiday wishes. It's good to hear from both of you. But I, I think that 
you can tell when you're making progress by the amount of community interaction that you have on a daily basis. But you also have to look at the level of concern when you have incidents that have occurred either in, in Baltimore or the incident you had in Florida or the current incident that happened a year ago in Chicago. And so that's why when you look at serving the community, you always have to constantly reevaluate what you're doing and how you are doing that type of, of service. Because as you see, these incidents are, are very sensitive and they're very serious. And, and certainly the community wants to feel like their concerns are being heard. And at the end of the day, they're being served equitably and professionally by the people that they've given the privilege of uh, enforcing the law. You know, I think that's so important there, and I, I think that from the from uh, you know from the private citizens' uh, standpoint of view, you know, it is it's important to them to feel as if their voice is not only being heard, but it's also important to them that they see real efforts. You know, efforts that does not uh, bandaid uh, efforts that are not you know just meant to uh, quiet down the you know the 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 uh the protests and those things but efforts that are really meant to build relationships and i wonder what that might look to uh to the average person especially when they are continuously seeing these things happen over and over again and i don't know what's the right answer to that i don't know you know what is it that people really need to see i mean uh unfortunately we have so much that has happened in our society. On one hand, we see these type of things happening, and yet on the other hand, we're seeing police officers that are being sh uh, being senselessly shot at uh, by individuals, and oftentimes being shot and killed, uh, ambushed, and those type of things. So, you know, how do we find a medium, uh, a middle ground in the midst of uh, both of these things being played out? I mean, I know that it's easy for uh, for you know average. Uh, John and Mary Q. Public to get upset with what we're seeing, as far as a lot of uh, what we call, uh, you know, police brutality and and uh, excessive force, and yeah, rightfully we see that. But is the temperament of our people the same when we're seeing the reckless and uh, senseless killings of police officers as well? And, and and because we're seeing both, does 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 that hinder the? reconciliation or, or that relationship or does it seem to draw uh, drive even a greater divide between well I think you have to have consistency in your interaction certainly when you're enforcing the law whether it's a traffic stop or an arrest of the demeanor of the officers goes a long way in terms of community relations uh, oftentimes the the only interaction that a citizen will have with their police department may be from a traffic stop or an accident or some other type of unfortunate incident. And certainly the that contact makes a lasting impression. Secondly, when you're looking at the just the normal operations of a police department, uh, that's why you hear many chiefs, uh, they, they really emphasize that it's important for the officers to get out of the cars, have some conversations, interact with the young people, the store owners, the, the church members, the schools, and, and, and the like. And all of these things are very important. And then on top of that, the management of the respective agencies has to have consistent interaction, your, your police commanders, your district commanders, your chiefs and deputies, and so forth. That interaction, too, 
has to be consistent and candid. And so that way, as we all know, by just the nature of law enforcement, there are going to be those incidents where there is a struggle or use of force. But if there is enough goodwill in the community, ideally the community will at least provide the police department the opportunity to do some fact-finding and then report back to the community about this is what happened. Either we found that the officer's conduct was lawful and appropriate or we found that the officer's conduct was not appropriate and these are the actions that we're taking and that the community has confidence in the police officials and, and others related to the criminal justice system to know that that type of reaction is consistent and you can count on that as the rule and not the exception. Absolutely. I think that definitely plays a lot into it. I think people want to see consistency inside of these things there, and yet it's still the temperament of our society. You know, we seem to have grown a little bit um, uh, more impatient, and we're seeing those things happening. And, Dr. Douglas, I was just wondering, uh, in, in terms of these things happen, I mean, can a society collectively experience its own sense of trauma uh, from these type of uh, incidents happening and seemingly so frequently? And, and I agree with that because when we speak of excessive force, we're talking about physical or something of that type. We're not even speaking of the way a police officer may speak to a pedestrian or to a suspect. You know, sometimes the, I think, and I've seen this, I'm not going to say I think, I've seen it where a police officers sometimes lose it, you know, because that suspect is verbally abusing the officer in some manner, not even not respecting the officer's authority. And so the reaction of some of most office officers when I see this happen is they react. They don't kindly say, Turn around, I'm gonna put the cuffs on you. They react in the same manner that the the perpetrator is reacting to them and that starts something. Just like the um the the student of a young man who was shot 16 times, and the, the, the young man, that was in Chicago, I think, and the other one in Missouri, yeah. and supposedly they were open-armed approaching the officer and then just shot down like you see something in a Western film, but they were saying things. They were actually mouthing off, and the police officer reacted to that and shot them, and I, that, was the wrong, that was the wrong reaction. But the fear of the community is that you're almost afraid to um, of, of the police. You never know what you're going to encounter. I mentioned to both of you, I think, a few weeks ago that I, I was waiting at the traffic light, and I saw a young lady pull up in the opposite direction, and a police officer swung up beside her and told her to pull over. Now, this was a young lady, maybe 19 or 18 in her car, and he told her to pull over. So when he told her to pull over, I pulled over too because I wanted to see what was happening because I didn't see her being offensive, but maybe he tagged her plate for some reason. But when he told her to pull over, um, he told her to get out of the car, and she got out of the car, and her hands were visible, her hands were visible, and then I, I saw him talking to her in a rough manner. I mean, she was like, Five feet tall, 90 pounds. 
and he was talking to her in a rough manner. I didn't get out of my car. I stayed visibly watching. And then another police car pulled up, and she started crying. And here are these two big, burly policemen coming around to this young lady, and they told her, okay, get in the car. You can go. Now, that was harassment. She didn't, she didn't wow. even have to show her license. She didn't, she didn't pull out a driver's license or a registration. They just said some harsh things to her and then told, told her to get back in the car. She could go. And I was wow. like, I don't know what that was all about, but that was harassment. And so I'm not saying that all police are like that, but since this whole figurative movement is going on now where police are abusing supposedly excessive presenting force on people, now that all that's happening, I think it gives, gives leeway to some officers who are not all good. I think it gives leeway to them to express some sort of uh, discrimination towards a gender, discrimination towards a race, or a national origin. Okay, and so, and that's what I'm seeing, and I saw it in my travels, not just where I'm currently residing in this state, but in other states, and that's what's happening. It sort of gives them a diploma, you know, to move on. Now, when we talk about excessive force or police brutality, that's not something that's just started in this decade. We can go all the way back to when the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment was put into the Constitution that was during the, the slavery period and the end of slavery with President James Madison when he went to Congress and he said that he wanted to put an end to this and put something in order called due process. And that was happening, in, and it came out of New York that proposed it. And at that time in New York, the, the police force was made most uh, typically of Irish, of the Irishmen. And because at that time there was a lot of migration coming in and it was nearing the end of slavery. And there was a lot of immigrants coming from Ireland. And they came with that mentality that not everyone is free. You were not an Irish police officer in New York at that time. You lived along the banks in huts. And almost, um, and that's where the name of the Bowery came from in New York. And they enforced it to the point where no one, not, regardless of your race, could feel safe walking down the street. And so it's come on up in ages. And a few years ago, 15, 20 years ago, we had uh, where policemen were being shot. They're just walking down the street. This happened uh, a few months ago in Brooklyn. Policemen sitting in their cars, and some person who they said was bipolar, you know, went and shot them. So it's, it's on both sides of the field. But at the same time, What's being done about it? That's my concern. What is being done about it? You know, it's interesting because the fact, you know, and, and by the way, what a great recap uh, that you gave as it relates to, you know, the historical, uh, the historical uh, uh, meaning behind so many of the things that we're seeing happen today. And what I thought was so important uh what that both of you kind of emphasize is the fact of people become exhausted when they don't feel like anything is being done. I think that that's important, that when they feel as if uh, they're taken for granted, when they feel as if uh, their voice is not being heard, when they feel disadvantaged, and you talked about a moment, and I'll tell you, I mean, I, shamelessly I have to confess that even uh, 
this weekend uh, when I was there in uh, the greater D.C. area. And uh, there was at one point where we had ended up over in Silver Springs, Maryland, and uh, my phone died. Uh, my uh, my phone died. Uh, the charger wasn't working in the car. Uh, I remembered how to get back to the greater area where we were, near Fairfax. But inside of that, we did not know exactly how to get. We knew we were close to where we needed to be. And there we were riding up behind a police officer. And I said to my wife at the time, I said, wow, I said, boy, it's a shame. I don't even feel safe in even, you know, flashing the lights to the officer or, or trying to get the officer attention. I mean, the thing about it, in my uh, in early days, I might have flashed the light at the officer to get him to try to just pull over since he was right in front of us. Or I would have drove up beside the officer and rolled down my window. But because of the way things are in this day and time, I was afraid to do either one. And there I was, just a lost, <laughs> just a lost person, just trying to find my way back to where I needed to be. And the very people that I felt like uh, to protect and to serve me, only because of all the things that we're seeing happen, I didn't feel safe. I did not feel safe just to get directions from the police officer. And, I mean, that's coming from someone who's well-versed, someone who's uh, educated, someone who's, you know, who have great relationship uh, in, in my own community with a lot of things. But, wow, it, it just was it was an interesting thing. So I can only imagine the anxiety that a lot of the, you know, general public feels as well. Well, and, you know, J.R., that, that you, you brought up some interesting points. Uh I can tell you as as a product of policing from the D.C. metropolitan, the Maryland, D.C. metropolitan area, uh, and, and I know you've heard it before, but I can tell you that it's true. The the majority of the officers are, are doing one hell of a job. I think that, and, and just like conversely when we were talking about the schools a couple of weeks ago and other mm-hmm. types of things, and we were saying the same thing, the majority of the kids in school are doing some incredible things. It's those it's those um those incidents, though, those couple of incidents that really uh, bring back concerns, they open old wounds, and they also uh, sort of remind everyone, not just uh, people in, in the African-American community, but all over, of the perceptions and the realities and, and some of the other things that we've been dealing with, you know, throughout the years. And so that's why it, it's so important that, and you keep hearing me say this, that the community has to continue to engage and work with their police departments and vice versa. It has to be a, a two-way street. I can tell you, in, you know, down in your area, and I know in Dr. Douglas's area, uh, we were talking about a lot of the community engagement that, that goes on down there and, and a lot of the things that we were doing in Prince George's and, and other places. A lot of those things are happening throughout the country. The, the problem is is that this is one of those professions where it definitely is, what have you done for me lately? And you have to constantly keep reassessing and, and working on your interaction and your policies and your procedures. Uh, in, in a lot of these things, I mean, when you look at the Chicago shooting, for example, now, Chicago by itself has had a lot of challenges. I mean, they're, they're, they're up to 444 homicides. So there's a lot of community pain that's going on, 
and a lot of law enforcement challenges that are going on there. So that's a, a very unique situation going on there. But w- when you look at that incident and you look at the fact that people are very concerned that, number one, of the reaction of the officer, but they're also concerned that the investigation took an exceptional amount of time to be completed before the tapes were released and these these other types of things. And so, and that's why I say, you know, it's very important that as the the police and the community are interacting, rather, there has to be a level of trust that when the information is released or that the police are going to come to us periodically and let us know what's going on. I don't know whether or not the Chicago PD did that throughout this investigation whether periodically they were updating community leaders and saying, look, this is where we are. We're still trying to gather a few more things or talk to a few more people. I haven't really seen that indicated in any of the the available information. But certainly that is something that needs to occur, along with a lot of other things that will make people feel a little more at ease when there is an incident, that if someone did something that's inappropriate, action is going to be taken to either correct that behavior, to retrain that person, or that person is going to be prosecuted, or if the if the behavior was, was justified, then that person will be recognized for good police work. So it, Absolutely. It is, yeah, it, so it's really incumbent upon the the community to continue to require that their police department and all their public servants are, are candid and that they are providing information to let the community know what's going on. But but conversely, it's incumbent upon law enforcement and, and public safety to realize that times are changing. We are now in a media-driven, we need the information 10 seconds ago age, you know, with cell phones and CNN and, and all that instant information that's available. So now it's incumbent that, you have to respond to the times as well. So this is a very challenging time uh, to be engaged in law enforcement. And as you noted, that you you have a lot of uh, officers who have made the ultimate sacrifice in protecting the communities that they serve. And so, and and I think that the community does, in fact, appreciate that. And and I and I and I think that we all think very highly of those men and women that do those uh, those jobs. But, again, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of work that remains to be done on on both sides of the issue, and uh, I just hope that throughout these tragedies that there will be a greater good that will come down the road. You know, and that is so important inside of that because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we've got to demand and expect more than just saying, well, we had a rally, we had a protest. You know, what are we really doing to bridge the gap? What are we really doing to, you know, to affect policy, to affect change? And I personally think in order for the community to tr- truly receive this in the right way and there to be a bridge uh, to, to br- bridge in this gap, I think that it's so important that, that the leaders of the community, clergy in particular, have to take a rightful position. And when I say a rightful position is that we can't be so full and primed with rhetoric that we're not being part of the solution and far as also, if you would, kind of calming down some of the, some of the um, 
uh, flaring statements and inflammatory things that are said. I think that if we're going to come up with strategies, that those strategies have to be discussed, they have to be hashed out, and then being implemented. And then that's where the place of accountability comes in, where we hold that, uh, where the police department is held accountable. But also, I think that there's a part on, uh, uh, you know, on on the behalf of the John and Mary Q public as well. You know, we're seeing a series of different things happening around the country where we're talking about uh, things such as having, uh, you know, classes and things with the community about how to interact with the police officers. What is, what is the proper response? What should we do? And I think those things are absolutely uh, necessary because, I mean, you know, not that we're trying to justify any type of uh, unlawful or, uh, you know, or, or what we call, you know, that, uh, you know, excessive type of punishment or, or force. We're not trying to justify that, but we also have to acknowledge, however, when there are improper responses to law enforcement orders and when there are uh, the wrong type of, uh, you know, uh, defiance that is going on, that it can cause things to escalate. And oftentimes we see that escalate and you have along with that, uh, you know, loud talking and you get a whole community involved and things just get out of hand real quickly. And I think that there has to be some responsibility on both sides. And I think that we have to be willing to also bridge that gap. You know, and there's a lot of non-biased police uh, policing uh, workshops and seminars that are going on around the country, you know, and, and trying to reach these type of, uh, you know, these type of uh, solutions. And I think, however, that very important link has to be the, the clergy, because I've seen us, meaning clergy, I've seen us sometime very much uh, cause the situation to exacerbate real quick. Uh, uh, because of our statements, because of the, our position inside of things, and what happened that we end up playing on people's fears and people's emotions, and things got out of hand. It's like a fire, you know. And we have to be that calming voice sometimes that said, "Listen, we've got this. We've come to the table of negotiation. We are, we're, you know, th- this is our strategy. These are the plans that are coming forth, and this is what we're going to hold them accountable to. And let's work somewhat diplomatically rather than working out of these emotions that oftentimes." end up, uh, if you would, if nothing else, end up inciting riot type of behavior. Sure. And, and you know, the other thing, and, and I've said this before also, that I would definitely hope your listeners will, will take into serious consideration, and that is grab that low-hanging fruit. And what I mean by that is most of the agencies throughout the country have opportunities for their constituents to participate. Uh, a lot of agencies offer citizen police academies, ride-alongs, um, community action committees, and other types of, of, of opportunities where you can really see what's going on every day. For example, I always, as a district commander and as a deputy chief, I used to always encourage people, and I used to even take the forms to the meetings, to, for example, to participate in a ride-along. Now, most departments require you to fill out a uh, a background thing so they can make sure that, uh, you know, they don't have folks with too serious issues right around. But um, but it gives you a chance to really see what the officers deal with every day and every night. And you, you get to go on certain calls and, and just kind of see the, the interaction, talk to the officer that's driving the car, um, just kind of get a, a good feel for what goes on a daily basis. The Citizens Police Academy is another gem that I think people should take advantage of, and most agencies offer this. And this is where 
citizens actually learn some of the things that officers learn in the police academy. So you learn about use of force and the use of force continuum and when it's okay to shoot and when it's okay to to um, take someone down to the ground and, and when you can question people and when you advise Miranda warnings and all those types of things that people see on television and hear about on the news. And these are tremendous opportunities to learn, and then you can take that information back into your community and share that information and encourage others to participate. Because what I tell people all the time is that your tax dollars are buying all of those pretty police cars and nice badges and guns and uniforms. So you should be an informed consumer and go see what your tax dollars are buying. And I think that most people will be very impressed by the things that they see. Now, I'm not saying that it's a panacea because it's not. And whenever you have humans involved in things, you're going to have flaws. But at least you can see ideally how the agencies are supposed to work and and function and interact on a daily basis, even during times of stress and and despair. And so I would just encourage your listeners, no matter where they are, whether they're in California or Maryland or Minnesota, to look up their local agency and find out what type of interactive programs they offer and take advantage of it. I, I think that's one of the places where you can start to, you know, get engaged, to interact, and be a part of the solution. Well, I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, Chief, but it also is causing all of this, that's what's going on today, is causing a lot of interactions within the community people, with the community, like neighbor to neighbor, uh, even police officer to police officer. A couple of months I saw a local sheriff talk to a another officer from a different branch. I think it was uh, firearms, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. And they were actually talking about a community issue. And they got hot at one another. I mean, and here's the community standing around, members of the community, watching these two officers have their verbal debates. And one appeared unarmed while the other one was in uniform. And he he instinctively touched his gun. Because I guess there was a tone in the voice that he just spontaneously reacted, and he touched his gun. So the ATF officer says, you're not the only one that carries a pistol out here, and everybody backed away. I mean, so you see that interaction. Wow. This is, you know, and you say, whoa, you know, like you just said. And this is happening. This is all this that's going on is bringing up some radicals between uh, people. I mean, from neighbor to neighbor. I had an encounter two days ago where I had called uh, the sheriff's department for my neighbor because. Um, my granddaughter's driving through the community, and she she comes up and she says, Nana, guess what just happened to me? And I said, what happened? She said, a guy on the motorcycle almost hit my car, and it looked like he was doing it on purpose, so I swerved around him, and as she's telling me, here comes the motorcycle, and drives up in my driveway and says, I don't like who are you, and, and I don't like the way you're driving, and I said, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. You talk to me, and this, you're in my driveway. And then he says, and it was his wife, it was the woman, and she said, I don't have to talk to you. I just want to know 
who was driving this car. And and so I said, well, talk to me. She cursed me out, and then she ran off on her motorcycle. Then here comes the motorcycle again. This time it's her husband. And he drives up on my driveway, and he says, um, I said, what's the problem? What's the issue, and who are you? You know. So then he says, I live around the corner, and this this brat, he called my granddaughter a brat. He said, this brat, um, she drove too close to my car. And he, I said, well, where was you, were you driving your car? He said, no, my car was parked. And she drove too close to my car, and I wanted to come over here and tell her that you don't drive too close to other people's parked cars in this community. And so, and then he kept shoving me. He kept touching me. Like, and I said, stop touching me. Don't touch me. And he says, I'm trying to make my point. I said, sir, you made your point, but don't put your hands on me. And this woman that you're speaking to, you call a brat, is probably older than your wife. And I don't appreciate it, and you need to move off of my driveway. And he wouldn't go. So at that point, I wouldn't go in the house to get my husband because it would have been bad. And I wouldn't leave my granddaughter because she would have been bad or she, she was ready to jump this guy. And I'm trying to be peaceful. So I dialed 911, and I told them that there was a possible altercation in my driveway from an unwanted person. And they came right away, and he was still there. And they came right away, and, and they, they said to him, um, uh, is she causing you a problem? That's what they said to him. Is she causing wow. you a problem? Wow. And I, I said, wait a minute. I Go, hold him. it, hold it, hold it. You call the police. He's yeah. in your driveway. Yes. But the question is asked, is she causing you a problem? Yes. Well, and, and, and so, Chief, I, I mean, I was like, hold, hold, hold on, Dr. Douglas, because I think I have to just take a real big pause on that one. Chief, inside of a situation like that, okay, She's the resident. She calls the police officer. Police mm-hmm. officer comes, and he immediately asks the person who's not the homeowner, <laughs> is the homeowner causing them a problem? Well, yeah. Did and, I miss and, something? Well, certainly in situations like that, that I don't think anybody would say that that was based on what Dr. Douglas is sharing with us, that was handled appropriately. And, um, and, again, that goes back to what I said earlier. There's a lot of work to be done on both sides of the issue. Um, you, you know, uh, many agencies are going through um, cultural diversity training, communication skills training, and other types of things so that those types of incidents are, are reduced. Because, you know, certainly people bring a lot of things to table when we're talking again we're talking about humans they bring their own set of of perceptions and realities and and prejudices and all kinds of other things when you put it in a bag and shake it up uh that is who officer x is versus x officer y is and so uh, clearly in those types of situations that goes right back to what i said in that you have to constantly reassess and retool your agency you have to continually train. You have to continually interact. You have to continually uh, make sure that officers 
are receiving as much interaction, communication, training as you can possibly find because these are the types of incidents that could have grown, that could have become very ugly, and they, and depending on how Dr. Douglas reacted or her family reacted by all this commotion on their in their home, I mean, who knows where that could have escalated to if you weren't dealing with, you know, certain types of demeanors versus others, you know. So absolutely. Clearly, this just uh, emphasizes my point that there's a lot of work to be done on both sides of the issue. Absolutely. That's, that's, well, why that's don't we the do that? I was, I'm sorry. That's yeah. the point that I was trying to get to is that the training, the police officer, we're talking about community outreach and, and, and interacting within the, the, the community. I think before the police even touch base with the community, they need to do some work first. They have some work to do, okay, before they come to the community. Well, I think that's a good place to pick up, up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Hope and Healing, A Journey to Wholeness. This is your host, J.R. Thicklin, and I'm so very glad that you join us tonight. Very special subject tonight, uh, police and community relationships. Are they getting better or are they growing further apart? And uh, we have here tonight our very special guest, uh, former Deputy Chief uh, uh, Michael Blow, along with our dear friend and our, and our, and our, our great colleague here, Dr. Annette Douglas. And uh, we want to take your questions and your comments on the other side of this break here, definitely, if you have a question or comment, please feel free to just simply hit the number one on your keypad that lets our producer know that you want to get on the air, and you can get on the air. You can ask your question or comment, and uh, we'll be so glad to have you on. We'll be right back after this break. You'll listen to Open Healing, the journey to hold us. Via internet, you're probably seeing a series of advertisements. Please click on those advertisements as they help us to continue to bring you the best in soulful talk radio. Choice to Fellowship on Facebook is a spiritual, drama-free, judgment-free fellowship forum for light minds to share in encouragement through testimonies, scriptures, music, prayer, worship, and fellowship. It is our desire to be an oasis of hope in the midst of the deserts and wilderness of life's most challenging experiences. We welcome you for prayer requests as well as your testimonies as we collectively operate as thermostats changing life's experience through God's leading in his word. Join us as we empower lives and shape destinies. That's Destiny by Choice 2 Fellowship on Facebook. Through a search, you can find us. 
you're listening via internet and you want to speak to the host, please dial 323-784-9638 and press 1 to be connected to the host. This is the Soul of America Radio. I am Indy Harlem 2, and I am fighting the power on the soul of America Radio. Worldwide Coast to Coast Talk Radio. This is the soul of America Radio. You're listening to Soar. And now back to Hope and Healing, a journey to wholeness with your host, J.R. Thicklin. Welcome back to Hope and Healing, a journey to wholeness. This is your host, J.R. Thicklin. Welcome back to Hope and Healing, a journey to wholeness. This is your host, J.R. Thicklin, and I'm so very glad you've joined us here on the Soul of America Radio Network. Just before we went to the break there, we were talking about the fact of the needing the need for training even for officers and them being prepared before they go on the scene here. And we want to open the phone lines up to those of you that are listening tonight. If you have a question, if you have a question or a comment, please just hit the number one on your keypad. And uh, you don't have to give your name if you don't like, but address your question and your comment. Here we have our very special guest on the line with us, former Deputy Chief Michael Blow, as well as our dear friend, uh, behavior scientist, Dr. Annette Douglas. And so just hit the number one on your keypad. That lets our producer know that you want to come on the air Uh and we'll get you on tonight. So that's the way you get in. You're already listening in on area code 323-784-9638. All you have to do is hit the number one on your keypad. That lets our producer know you want to get on the air, and we'll get you on the air tonight. For those of you that are uh, listening by way of the Internet, uh, there make sure that the fact that if you want to get on, you can get on by absolutely just uh calling area code 323-784-9638. And I'm going to make you aware that the chat room is actually open as well. So those of you that may be listening by way of Internet, you can get on through the chat room, and we'll make sure that you get on. We have a caller tonight, uh, number ending in 0824. We want to bring them on the air. Uh, Caller, uh, you're on the air tonight with us. Uh, Number ending in 0824. Let's see. Hold up. Producers getting you ready to come on in just a second there. Okay, so that'll be the next call that we'll take uh, in just a moment there as uh, the producers uh, just getting ready to clear that line, or at least should I say uh, patch that line in so that we can bring them into this discussion here. Um, as we're waiting on that to happen. You know, I was most recently at a forum, uh, Chief, and uh, one of the things I heard that was alarming to me, actually was the meeting, was hearing this uh, uh, deputy chief of police talk about the limited budget that they had for our trainings. And uh, they were talking about the dollar amount that they had toward training was less than $65 per officer to be trained. I was somewhat alarmed by that, and I want to know, is that is that somewhat the case in a lot of departments? Is it the fact of the lack of funding for training, or is it the lack of priority? Well, I, I think sometimes it it just goes back to, Many agencies, as you know, in many jurisdictions are having challenges with their budgets. And oftentimes there is a, a number that you have to make 
that will allow you to keep moving throughout the year. And so many agencies have to look through, many agency chiefs have to look through their budgets and figure out where they're going to cut and so forth. Unfortunately, some agencies uh, find the need to really cut their training budget. But I think as we see, and, and of course that, that's based on a variety of factors, but I think as you see, training is such an important issue uh, when you look at a lot of the incidents that have occurred over the years and over the recent few months, particularly when we look at uh, the incident Dr. Douglas uh, uh, shared with us, that that's probably one of the things that, that we used to look at absolutely last because you get a big bang for your training dollars, um, whether it's the appropriate use of force, um, the appropriate way to interact with people, or just other things that the officers can use to enhance their skills uh, for their own survival. So, uh, you know, that's probably a situation where that, that, that particular chief was down to the bare bones of things that they had to look at in terms of their budget dollars that um, they had to do to keep their agency uh, thriving and, and working, rather. And that's, that's very unfortunate. And a tough choice to have to make there, and I'm quite sure it is, and uh, you can't please everyone. But listen, our caller, uh, we're getting them on the air. Uh, so the next caller was in the queue, a number ending 0824. Okay, they were there. Uh, I think they're going to bring them back on again. Uh, just bear with us here. As that caller, thank him so very much. I thank her uh, for their, their patience there. We'll get them on the air in just a second. I was concerned about that because, Chief, on another front, I do – quite a few uh, different trainings and corporate trainings. And uh, one municipality here in South Florida, we do a training for that municipality. And interesting, the last persons on board for that training actually was the police officers. Uh, we had the fire department. We had all the other workers there. And there was almost a stalemate for a second before we got the um, police department on. And this was a series of trainings, trainings that dealt with not only uh, uh, diversity, uh, cultural uh, competency. It dealt with violence in the workplace and sexual harassment in the workplace, and we dealt with a number of those things. And uh, we really went through a battle almost to finally get them on board, but we finally got them on board. And I will tell you, for the first two or three rounds with them, there seemed to be a lot of apprehension about why are we even sitting up in here? Why are we even sure. taking this? And, and we had to present it in a way to get them to understand, although we understand that they are making split-second decisions. But a lot of things that we we taught in these training was things that we consider things that just affect your life, I mean, the way that you interact with people, and that's so important. But let's get to our call up there, number in 0824. Good afternoon, good evening. You're on the air, open healing, welcome. Good evening. How are you this evening? We're doing great. So glad to have you Good. with us. you have a question and a comment? Yes, I do. In regards to uh, Dr. Douglas talking about this individual being on her property and she being the one that called the police officers, I, I hear you talking a lot about that the police officers need to be trained, but I, I'm, I'm a little uncertain as to why somebody would need to be trained not to be a racist because that sounds to me exactly what this police officer was, was a racist. And when you come on board with a job like that, when, and some, office, some, some people do become officers so they can do what they do, uh, there should have been something done or said to this officer. There should have been some retribution. And certainly there should have been a warrant given to this person that was on her property 
who took a, who had enough audacity to put his hands on her, and it doesn't sound like anything was addressed in that area. Wow, that's an interesting thing there, uh, uh, Doctor Douglas. I, how do you respond to that? Because definitely, you know, the attitude. You know, first of all, the boldness. I, I mean, I was somewhat uh, caught off guard. Uh, to even come on your property, then to refer to someone by the name of, you know, being reckless, and then uh, to, I mean, listen, I know, I mean, there, I have some Italian in my bloodline, but and we talk with our hands, but our hands are not made to touch people, especially uninvited. And so uh, I think the question is that in terms of this, how, how do you train someone not to be a racist? In uh, in terms of that, and uh, and along those lines, so many other things that was just simply not carried out in that situation. Absolutely, it was not carried out. And and when I addressed the fact that he called uh, my granddaughter out of name and put his hands on me, um, it was at the point. Well, 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 well. Let, let's get to the bottom of it. And I'm like, there is no bottom to this. A couple of these are two separate incidents. One that he comes up on my driveway, and secondly that he puts his hands on me, and I had to call you, and he's still here. I felt that if I called you, he would leave. And at that point, another car came up, and when he came up, he said, "Hey, Doctor Douglas, how you doing?" And then my neighbor, another neighbor, came up and said, "Hey, hey, Annette, what's happening?" And so this person who wanted to accost me turned around and said, "Oh, you know her." And they said, yeah, and I think you should get to know her. But what if it wasn't me, you know? Um, And he didn't apologize. He didn't apologize. I'm sure it's not over because I'll see him at a neighborhood meeting, and I'm not going to feel comfortable knowing that this man put his hands on me and nothing happened, okay? And so that's why I'm looking at, okay, maybe I can handle it a little bit different than somebody else, but it didn't have to be me. It could have been somebody else. And so and she was right. How do you train an officer not to be a racist? They come with baggage. There are some people that even join the force to say, "I'm going to get back at those ruffians. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that." How do you stop it? I know that in government, when we had to um, decide who is going to be best for a position or who is going to be promoted and so forth, we did personality tests. And and actually, from the government. I worked with the New York City Police Department who conducted personality tests, the FBI who conducted personality tests. Are policemen around the country, are they being chosen after giving a a strong behavioral assessment to determine whether or not they cannot demonstrate racism, sexism or so in their position? It's out of hand. That's a good question. Uh, you know, I don't know what is, and maybe, Chief, you could answer that a little bit more closely there. And uh, caller, uh, by all means, uh, yeah, I welcome you to follow up with uh, to the response of Dr. Douglas there. But I, I, I too wonder, you know, are they going through these type of assessments, uh, uh, whether we're talking about personality tests or other tests, to really, to really uh, get down to, I guess I would call some very core principles and core things that are going on within the officer. I mean, you, you yourself said it earlier, these, at the end of the day, these are human beings. And so whatever they come with, they're coming with, regardless they're wearing a uniform or not. And, and I just right. wonder to what degree is there assessments and the proper assessments? Sure. Well, the, there, there are several mechanisms that are in place for assessing a person's ability to be an officer. 
uh, as Dr. Douglas indicated, where it starts, obviously, is in the background process where there is a psychological test, and that is, and, and depending on the agency, it can look a lot of different ways. Some agencies give uh, a couple of different tests, and some of the tests have 100 or so questions on them that ask you all kinds of questions about your preferences and, and music and all kinds of other things, and and then you have some agencies have an interview with a, a psychiatrist where the psychiatrist asks you some additional questions on top of the battery of tests that you've taken, and and some agencies even have scenarios as part of their, their background process to see how you work through various types of situations to determine your capacity to deal with people of different backgrounds and, and races and sexual orientations and the like. Then, if once the person makes it through that part, then obviously you have the academy process. And the academy process also puts that recruit officer through uh, various types of scenarios and training to see how you deal with situations under stress and in the heat and in the rain and, and under uh, riot conditions and all kinds of other things, again, to see how do you react in different scenarios and domestic situations and crowds and, and disorderlies and, and just people who are just asking for directions. Um, and then thirdly, there's the FTO process. Once that, that officer uh, has graduated from the academy, there's normally a period of between, you know, four to 16 weeks where that person is riding with an experienced officer, again, who is watching that, that rookie officer in certain situations and taking notes and using numerical scores to see if that person is going to be able to get off of probation because of how they interact with the public and so forth. So there, there, there are several uh, ways where people are, are, are tested to see if they are worthy of, of being able to serve the public. Now, obviously, this, these, these are not foolproof situations, and again, that's why agencies are always looking for that magic bean, if you will, that's going to be able to absolutely look at the first five guys and girls through the door and say, yes, 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 no, 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 because based on our test, we don't think you have the either the the people skills, the 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 rational skills, or or the physical stamina, or, or the mental capacity to be a police officer. So. You know, it, again, it's always a work in progress because I can tell you from my time in the training academy to the time I became a deputy chief, uh, there were a lot of different mechanisms that came into place in terms of assessing people's ability to be a police officer. And and, and, and that's encouraging to know. And, and the thing about it is being able to see that consistency across the board there uh, goes a long way inside of that. We have another caller, but I want to go back to the previous caller. And if you have another question or comment, I definitely want to hear from you. Uh, well, it's just that I, I, I just think that it, it, the, the situation needs to be looked into a lot more stronger than it is because it just seems as though certain that you got one group of people treated one way and another group yet another way. But uh, let me interject with there are certainly a lot of fine police officers because I personally know them. But unfortunately, they get so drowned up in the muck and the mire of the ones that are not. So, again, I don't even think there's a way that you can even tell if a person is a blatant racist. And so, again, this, this officer that was on her property, I just want to say this. 
he certainly should have some kind of retribution brought up against him, some charges or allegations and brought up against him, and the, her neighbor should have some brought up against him as well. Absolutely, absolutely, in, in, in terms of there. And uh, what would I've seen to be, and these are the things I believe, believe that bring frustration to people, is the fact that she took the proper steps. She did the steps. She did not fly off the handle. I mean, think about it. Somebody with a different temperament. Someone with a, exactly. a different sense of a, this really could have escalated to something very terrible. And and we could see when things are not handled properly how things could escalate, and we could have had an all-out riot there, neighborhood brawl going on as a result of it being improperly handled, and almost to the fact that when the officers showed up, as if immediately they saw Dr. Douglas as being the culprit of the problem. And mm-hmm. uh and how do you make that determination other than the fact that either you looked at that person's skin color who was the troublemaker and automatically you saw that that that, that commonality or you just you know or you just devalued the fact that Dr. Douglas was where she was and lived where she was and you immediately almost treated her like she didn't belong there so those are things there that goes a little bit uh, further than a you know a, a class those things there are very deep seated uh uh interpersonal skills and and uh and sentiments that that individual share absolutely absolutely absolutely. in terms of that we have another caller on the line and we want to bring that call on call a number ending in 2042 Uh, you're on air tonight with hope and healing a journey to wholeness welcome hey thanks dr picklin i just have one question and it's about um a lot about the past if we've had this problem with um, racial disparities and how we're treated in our communities, why hasn't anyone come up with the idea of having an agency that runs alongside the law enforcement sort of as a checks and balances? Because there's, from what I hear, and I may be wrong, it's about 250 um, cases of murder in the last three, four, five years, and there seems to be no checks and balances. You have the same good old boy system that was in place and now these cops are FBI agents, they're sheriff agents, uh, I mean, they're deputies. They just seem to be matriculating through the law enforcement um, uh, law enforcement agencies. And it's, it's like trying to take a bath and put on back dirty clothes. You have the same old minds who are doing these tests, who are doing these, some of them. And trust me, we do have some wonderful officers, especially in Riviera Beach and some of the other um, African-American municipalities, and not even just that, but we have a lot of agencies that are just, the good old boys are now matriculated up in the system. They're the ones giving the test. Why don't we, I mean, as a black people, look at start protecting ourselves, not from a, a cowboy stance, but just from a realistic stance as we need a checks and balance type of system. We really do. That's an interesting question there. Uh, Chief, I don't know if you have anything you can contribute to that. Uh, uh, he's talking about the fact of why isn't there some type of check and balance uh, uh, check and balance system? Why isn't there some type of agency or, or whatever that is called to ride alongside, uh, you know, to come alongside law enforcement to ensure that these things are in place? Well, many cities actually have those types of uh, oversight groups. You know, for example, in L.A., they have the police commission. In the um, in Prince George's County, we had the Citizens Complaint Oversight Panel. And a lot of departments have similar agencies where they have um, lawyers and other members of the community who are there to look at investigations and complaints and other types of things to as a, a way of checking 
to make sure that the policies and procedures are being followed uh, by the agencies. You know, for example, certain certain oversight groups will look at all of the internal affairs investigations uh, just to see what the outcomes were, if the if the investigations were done thoroughly. Uh, in some places, they will send back recommendations to the chief, and the chief will will um, look into those recommendations. So it just depends on the city how they do that particular uh, type of oversight. But the one thing that, that I, I definitely agree upon uh, is that your, your caller raised a good point, and this is something that uh, many of us uh, have been saying, uh, particularly the, the African-American officers, and that is that it's, it's very important that the members in the community um, engage in that process of becoming firefighters and police officers and, and DEA agents and so forth, um, particularly in, in your large cities and so forth, where you have, you know, two or three million people. For, let's just say, you know, in, in, in Baltimore where you have 600,000 residents. Well, I, I, I find it hard to believe out of 600,000 people that we don't have members who grew up in those communities that are qualified to be police officers. And and I'm sure you have some incredible talent in those 600,000 people that are the future chiefs and DEA uh, special agent in charge and head of the Secret Service among them. And so I think it's very important, like the caller said, that the, the members of our community who are interested in law enforcement um, actually take the plunge and and – and try to become a member of an agency because that's how you begin to see real change. When you have people who have have grown up in the communities and there's a vested interest, I grew up in this community, I've lived here for the last 20 or 30 years, and I'm very proud to be here and I'm not going anywhere. And not to say that, that people that, that haven't grown up in a particular community can't serve that community well. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that when you have grown up in an area, and you know that area, and that area knows you, you automatically come to the table with a vested interest that you can't even put a price tag on. And so, I, again, I would encourage uh, folks in the community to also not only participate in the earlier um, opportunities that I discussed, but to actually apply to be a police officer in your town. I think that's a, a great way to start uh, making some meaningful changes. Well, that, that's awesome because I think that's very important. You know, and that brings us back to a place, and, uh, and, and Mr. Parker, please stay on. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things, it goes back to the fact, I can recall when we were all little boys growing up in school, and you would go around and teach react, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And at one time, that was one of the most respected uh, professions there. You would hear the little boys talk about, I want to be a police officer. I want to be a police officer. I want to be a police officer. Then the question used to be asked, why? You would explain to why. And the reality is today, are we seeing that happen as much? Is is I mean, I mean, and there could be a number of reasons that we're not seeing it happen if it's not happening as much. You know, uh, uh, television now is more global. I tend to, uh, if you would, magnify uh, celebritism and stardom and no-site things there and athleticism. And, and so, you know, maybe perhaps police officers are not on the top of that uh, uh, that top of that pecking order as it was at once upon a time. But you wonder 
the fact of how do we change that? How do we change that uh, where people see the respect and the honor in the position? And I go back to something that was said earlier. We definitely know that there are great officers there. I mean, it's funny how we can, in our mind, immediately begin to differentiate when it comes to a need that we have. I mean, when things happen to us, we're going to call police. When things happen, we're going to call them. Now, somehow or another, when we call them, we detach ourselves from all that other stuff that we see going on because we know that at the end of the day, we still expect them to, to protect and to serve. So I think that's very important side of uh, those type of things happening there. Uh, Mr. Parker, did uh, did uh, did you get any clarity on your question as far as an answer, or uh, did you uh, need or desire uh, to go just a little further? I think he did. He touched on something that was kind of like very, 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 very true. Um, uh, he, he did address the, the fact that the, a lot of the good old boys are still in the system. But he he came from a different vantage point, which I mean, which is a very realistic need, which is we need a lot more of us to take those positions and take initiative and to get involved in the actual law enforcement field, which is a difficult conversation, seeing that, you know, anyone who does that in nowadays is looked upon as a snitch, as a as a backstabber to his inner community. We have to have we have to have some real conversations. We have to really address the death, the death rates, the, the, the disparities between you know, our communities, we have to really address these things and put it in the public ear and eye so they'll see that we're, I won't say we're in trouble, so they can actually see that this, this, this mindset that we have is kind of like stopping us from excelling as a community because if you got every other portion of your community, if you got the law, if you got the lawmakers and you have bankers and you have lawyers and they're all black, but then you don't have the law enforcement equally, you know, outfitted in your community, and you're operating with four fingers instead of five, you know. And I mean, as much as I, me personally, at this age and this point in my career, don't think I would, you know, do it. I do think that we need to have more involvement and a different vantage point from our people about the, um, becoming involved in law enforcement. That's the only way we can really tell I, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. The thing is that yep. when you say that, you said you said at this point, and you use the word age, and you're right. We're at we're at different generations, and this new generation is coming up. I I would love, like you were describing, to see them get more involved because it's this new generation that's getting hit, you know, um, that's getting shot down, that people yep. are not listening to. And and that's and then when um, Chief Blow says community involvement, yes, the the people who are of our generation are involved. We get involved, but we need to draw in that other generation, the one who's coming up behind us, to get them involved. Absolutely, and I think that you know when we see things happening, you know people generally say, "Well, how can we make a difference?" Well, what a way to make a difference! And I just wonder how much is there much recruitment effort that goes on? You know, I know with the uh, you know with the armed services, they send in recruits. Recruits go into the schools and they begin to recruit, and they have a package there and materials there. I don't know how much recruitment is actually being done, and to what level inside of our schools, inside of our universities, and colleges that are really out there trying to recruit officers. I will say that um, 
that my stepson he's a he's a deputy sheriff and uh, uh you know and and he's loving his job. He's a young man, he's 25 years old and uh uh you know and uh he takes great pride in that and and you know he's always been that type that kind of wants to get involved and want to be a difference maker inside of that. But I just wonder how much can we do because I think that there's a, there's a responsibility that lies on the community at large as well. I think that we have to once again, you know, to try to have to uh, highlight the importance of being a police officer, the honor in being a police officer and those type of things, and hopefully to get our people uh, to want to be a part of that. And I think that's very crucially important there. Just want to take the time to acknowledge that you're listening to Hope and Healing, a journey to hold us uh, here on the Solar America Radio Network. This is your host, J.R. Thickman, and I'm so very glad that you've joined us tonight. Uh, our show tonight is dealing with police and community relations. Uh, are they getting better or are they growing further apart? We've had some very insightful solutions and suggestions that have come not only from our special guest, uh, former Deputy Chief Michael Blow, and our uh, behavior uh, scientist, uh, Dr. Annette Douglas, but also from our callers have uh, brought some very great insight inside of this tonight. And if you are listening and desire to have a question and or comment, simply hit the number one on your keypad that lets our producer know that you want to get on the air and we'll bring you on the air tonight. And that's very important. I don't want to take a break right now, uh, everything, with 14 minutes left in the show, but I do want to bring this up here. And uh, you just made mention, I believe, Mr. Parker, about the number of deaths. And I, I pulled up an article here, and that's kind of interesting. Listen very carefully because it sounds contradictory, but I notice now it's an update. It says 776 people killed by police so far in 2015, 161 of them was unarmed. But in that same time period, and I, I don't think I like the verbiage here, but it said, but just but just 25 officers have died from firearm-related violence in the same period. I don't know if I like that language there, just. I mean, as if that is some type of low number. Um, none of these numbers are low. But this uh, data was compiled by The Guardian uh, for a project that's called The Counted, uh, and it's continued updated in an interactive database of uh, police killings in the United States. And um when I began to read this, I began to look at the fact because I wanted to know, in particular, like most of us, uh, of this data here is if comprehensive information available on these police killings and things, and um, and what it said to us inside of here that uh, but police killings in America have sparked a national movement for police reform, and that's what we hear it being said even tonight. But uh, it's interesting to note that. Um, as that as the article was updated, it talked about the fact in the month of uh, November 2015, the total number of police killing had uh, surpassed 1,000. And it talked about that in the total number of that, uh, uh, U.S. police killed 776 people there, was killed, and the vast majority of those that was killed were men, 745 of them were men. Police people who were killed by police at all ages in every state except Rhode Island, South Dakota, and Vermont, <laughs> three of the uh, country's least populated states. Uh, certain cities stood out uh, as more dangerous than others. The most police, uh, uh, the most police by killings occurred in Los Angeles, 14 dead; Houston, 11; Phoenix, 9; New York, 7; Oklahoma City, 7. Now, Chief, I was kind of alarmed because I was expecting to find Chicago in that no number there, uh, Illinois, I should say. Uh, but they were saying the shooting was the most common cause of police-related death at 680. 
of the 161 unarmed individuals, 71 were shot by police. The second most common cause of death found in these studies were tasers, which is another subject that has been in the news a lot later, which led to the deaths of 39 people, followed by being struck by police vehicles was 26 people that died at, uh, at, at, you know, as a result of being struck by police vehicles. And then there was another 28 people who died in police custody, according to this guardian. Uh, but uh, once again, this, fig- this uh, figure does not include victims like Sandra Bland, who died in a Texas jail under conditions many described as being suspicious, although suicide was listed as her official cause of death. And it goes on to say of the 582 people who were armed at the time of their death, 374 was carrying firearms and 107 was armed with knives. And of course, the numbers also account for whether those killed were actively threatening police with their weapons versus those who were not. Uh, like Paul Castaway, who was a Native American who was killed in July, uh, July 12th, as a matter of fact, in Denver while holding a knife to his own neck. And yeah. although... Uh, you know, so we—I mean, there's a lot there. This is a very interesting article. Uh, uh, they are compiling this with interactive data, as, as well as uh, data uh, interacted with the uh, Federal Bureau of uh, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, as well as uh, some of the other uh, law enforcement uh, statistics and data. So, with, with that being said, we. We we've got a, we got many issues that are going on inside of this, and um, you know it, it's a sad case either way it goes when we're seeing these type of things happening, and I think the unarmed cases are what people really look at that is so mind blowing, and uh, you know and uh, we have a long way to go, although I think there has been some progress there. Uh, uh, Chief, how, how would you kind of categorize that uh, that little excerpt from that particular story? Uh, I mean that that sounds like an excessive number uh, to me of the number of people that were killed, and I, I think one of the things I failed to mention, I think that is very important, in particular for this listening audience here, is that the proportion or the disproportionate number of these individuals that were people of color that were black versus um, those that were not, and I just I actually had that number up here just a second ago, which basically said uh, in in this case here that there were five people, five black to every million people that were killed compared to two white to every million. And um, and they talk about uh, this in the numbers and and um, basically how we're handling this situation. So, uh, I mean, Chief, I, I invite your, uh, your comment inside of that. I mean, does this not seem like an excessive number? And, um, and you know, how much could training – um, improve those numbers. Uh, definitely has been a national cry, and definitely most uh, recently locally here for dash cams and body cams. But can we say those things would help bring down those numbers, or would those things just further, you know, give us more visual evidence of what's happening? Well, I, I, certainly those numbers uh, definitely uh, can create a level of concern when you're just looking at the aggregate totals, but. I think the other thing you have to look at um, is what what are you comparing those numbers to, uh, and and you have to look at um, year-to-date comparisons and those types of things, and and not to of course I'm in total agreement um, in any life that's lost, whether it's a police officer or 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 a suspect or whoever, that that's uh, unacceptable, and and that's not where we want to go as a society. 
So I think that as you look at those numbers, uh, I, I think they're actually declining um, from from year to year, although the numbers are still uh, higher than, than I can imagine anyone would want them to be. Uh, another phenomenon that you have to keep in mind as you look at these numbers is that within those numbers you also have uh, certain things like your, your suicide by cop incidents where a, an individual has just decided that I don't have the courage to deal with whatever thing I have going on, so I'm going to barricade myself in a room here, then I'm going to run out and start shooting at the police. And, of course, that that's a tragic situation. Um, you know, so you, you have a, a lot of different things that, that contribute to these numbers. Uh, in particular, you, you talked about the tasers, and that's another phenomenon that's come, you know, in the last 15 to 20 years is the use of less lethal technology. Um, the Just by the nature of the, of the name, uh, it indicates that these are devices that are used in certain situations that are designed to uh, ensure compliance but not create enough uh, force, if you will, that it will create serious injury or death. But certainly, as we all know, that if you have certain conditions, uh, you may have a heart condition or other things, if you're jolted by a couple thousand volts of electricity, um, that could do a number of things to you, particularly if, you're, if you are under the influence or you are, are wearing a pacemaker or, or something of that nature. Although the, the manufacturers of these devices have data that, that seem to indicate otherwise, but as we all know, anything is possible. But when you look at these stats, uh, certainly that is a, a high number of, of people. Um, I, I can tell you that that is the chief's worst nightmare is to have a departmental shooting because not only do you, not only of the impact that it has on the community, uh, you have a, a now a member of the community that's lost a son or a husband or a daughter or whatever, but you also now have an officer that's traumatized, and we're not talking about those situations where it's clear that you, you know, like the South Carolina situation where the, the officer shot the guy as he was running away. We're not talking about that kind of extreme nonsense. Uh, we're talking about where you have a legitimate use of force in a situation that it was appropriate to use. Uh, you know, you have an officer now that is, is going to suffer with reliving those incidents, and and you also have the, the victims of the suspect's actions, not only the victim of whatever crime he was trying to perpetrate, but his family. So there are no winners uh, in those situations at all. And so Absolutely. every year I can tell you that agencies throughout the country are looking for ways to improve their training, uh, improve their deployment of force, um, you, know, they're, they're, you know, everything from making sure you know how to handle that firearm properly to you have enough sense to know when to not only use that weapon, but the appropriate time to even display the weapon. And so all of these things are, are very um, serious issues that agencies are looking at every day in terms of making sure that an officer can go through their entire shift or their entire career without having to use deadly force. And that's, that's the aim of, of law enforcement. They are prepared to do that, but... Um, Again, I, I think that as you look at these stats, uh, we, we need to look at the incidents that led to these shootings, um, you know, just a lot of other information other than just the statistics themselves so that, again, 
you can have that candid conversation about where do we go from here. Uh, Dr. Douglas and I were talking offline, and that is, you know, it's it's not only is important that the, the departments are training, but that the community is also involved in certain segments of the training so that oh, you absolutely. don't look You know what I mean? And that's, that's a very important piece. And, uh, again, um, I, I'm just speaking from my experience in Prince George's, we were involving the community in, in training. Uh, we were even involving them in development of our, of our crime reduction strategies so that we wouldn't overlook the obvious. You know what I mean? Because you're, you're so Absolutely. married to that strategy. And I think that's so important. You know, in different areas, we sometimes we talk about cross-training, you know, cross-training from different perspectives and, and to understand those things there. Wow, what great discussion. I know our time is almost gone, but we're going to extend it. We do have another call on the line. I believe calling us, I'm not sure if this is from the great state of uh, uh, Montana or Missouri, but uh, we definitely want to welcome you on the line tonight. Uh, caller number ending in 4600, welcome. You're on Hope and Healing, a journey to wholeness. Yeah, I'm calling here from the St. Louis area, <clears throat> not too far from first. Yes, sir. Really. But I was happy yes, to hear the gentleman talk about including uh, citizens in the training because that was a point that I had made mention at a meeting here on relationships. And, yes, citizens should. There should be a citizen committee that review the training, the DVDs, curriculum, and procedures, and they should have uh, a authority to say yay or nay on it because that training dictates how that officer, that employee, that hiree interacts with the public. And it's very, very, because you've heard of cases like down in Florida where they was using silhouettes, pictures of black males for target practice and their training. And that is totally asinine. And yeah. on the issue of deadly force, we have uh, in Missouri, we have introduced to the state legislature for the revision of the state statute on the use of deadly force because it's too broad, it's, an, it's not specific, and it's not clear. That's why we have all these different results. You know, the thing that would get you shot in Ferguson, you go out uh, five miles from there, it would get you handcuffed. And it's because of the interpretation. And I was listening Absolutely. to a... I was listening to another program this morning, and a representative had made mention in Chicago that she's a state rep, and they're talking about having police officers to have their own insurance because they're the ones. Because these cities are having to pick up these settlements, and cities don't have that type of money. There should be a national registry when you have a police officer who uh, infringes on the rights of a United States citizen, that their name go in their registry so that when they go to try to get a job someplace else, that infraction will stay with them just like as if you was a tag or felon because mm-hmm. municipalities have a right to know who it is that they're hiring. Video mm-hmm. from breath, from body cameras, from the deck and the dash camera, that video should be uploaded to an independent source, whereas the department don't have the opportunity to tamper with it. Look what went on in Chicago. Look how you had police officers go into the Burger King and erase footage of what, yeah. you know, the, the, surveillance, the, the surveillance videos. So there's a lot of things that could be done. And, uh, you know, some municipalities are working on this. 
I think that if a police department is serving a 95% of black community, then that's, that public works department should reflect the people that it serves because we're talking about local jobs rather than those coming from the outside taking away those minimum uh, middle class wage and salary and also the pension and benefits, which the people in the community continue to pay long after they're gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you bring up some very insightful points there. I mean, almost one by one, we could definitely look at those. And one, one of the resounding themes that I'm hearing now is is the importance of having either a citizen review board or a citizen uh, compliance board or something there that, that definitely brings the citizens into the equation there. And I think that it be, it works toward a greater relationship between uh, uh law enforcement and community. I think community don't want to feel like they're being dictated to, but they want to feel like you're really here to protect and to serve. And sometimes we have to tell you or help inform you how to treat us. Because it, like you said, you know, even here, and I, I've heard of those cases here uh, in certain areas of Florida where uh, they was using the silhouette as part of, you know, I guess uh, part of the uh, you know the gun training and, and and shooting exercises. Now that that says a lot because I believe with those type things, those type messages in an officer's mind head, you know, it, it makes it just a lot easier to, to to finish off or to carry through a follow through when they find themselves in a real life situation inside of that. Uh, Chief, you, you were there, and I heard you as well as Dr. Douglas inside of inside of these statement. There's a lot that was said there, and I definitely. Uh, I'd like to hear some of your feedback on on uh, on some of the things that were said. Gee. Oh, good, Dr. Douglas. Were you were you ready to say something? No, I was calling on you to make that comment. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You, you know, there there are so many uh, good things that you said there. Uh, I I think you know when you were talking about, for example, I'll just start with the with the capturing of the video footage and those types of things. There's actually technology that exists that allows you to capture that footage and analyze it, compare it against, you know, uh, use of force complaints in that agency and and, and just really, and, and then develop good training from it and, and those types of things, which is beneficial to the agency and the community because you can you can learn from an incident whether, the, whether it was again, it was a justifiable situation for 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 a shooting, or whether you had some type of situation where there was inappropriate action taken, you can still take that information and learn from it. Because at the end of the day, uh, we want to learn from whatever the incident was, so that we can make it better, or we can prevent that type of incident from occurring, or we can make sure that that officers know that this is behavior. That um, that's unacceptable, and so and, and in terms of the the insurance, uh, many jurisdictions now, depending on the action that was taken by the officer, sometimes they may choose not to represent that officer if it's something that was just some type of egregious action. I'm just going to say the officer, you know, was um, driving her patrol car and she was intoxicated. And, and created an accident while on duty, you know, just something that was just really uh, goofy. And so some jurisdictions will choose to not represent the officer. They will protect the interests of that jurisdiction, but they say, hey, look, we didn't train that officer to drive a 
cruiser while they're intoxicated. I don't know where she got that from, but she's on her own. She's going to have to defend herself. We're not spending a dime of taxpayer money to defend that foolishness. So there, that also exists. But And, and conversely, uh, there are officers that do carry extra insurance uh, to protect themselves against um, lawsuits and, and other types of things um, that, that exist as well. So a lot of these things currently exist. Now, to the extent that it is used from one agency in one city and one state to another, uh, I can't, you know, concretely say who's doing what. But I can tell you that there's technology that exists and there are other protocols that exist um, that uh, may address the caller's concerns. Well, you know, if I may address the chief, you know, there's also a thing where we want to have uh, – here in Ferguson, where you have 53 officers and you only had two blacks in a community that's like 70, 75% black, uh, we want to take away the ability for a chief to get on the phone and call up new recruits. We want to have a central depository where applicants deposit their application, and if not only the fire department, but the police department, but public works, period. Those heads call that agency and ask for an application to be sent over to them. And that does away with that good old boy system that we see predominantly in some of these communities around here. And I'm sure it's the same way across the country. And and that's very important. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I guess the silver lining to that gray cloud in Ferguson is that it's almost like you guys are able to sort of start from scratch. I know that you're in the process now of looking for a chief and those types of things. But the processes that you're that that the Ferguson Police Department is using is now being scrutinized and looked at by the Department of Justice and others. And this is the perfect time for the community to become engaged in the hiring, the training, the deployment and all of the other crucial situations of how that police department operates. Because I don't think anyone would argue when when you would say that Ferguson clearly showed that there was a lack of police community partnerships going on, uh, among a lot of other things that were happening there, and so this is I absolutely think you you raise a very valid point, and this is the time right now to become engaged in that process, which again is why I said earlier this is the time now for citizens to to become part of those advisory groups, to do those ride-alongs to become part of those those councils that are in those various neighborhoods, or if there's not one there, demand that one is started or start one. Because this this is what no agency can be successful without community partnerships. If anyone tells you otherwise, they are selling you oceanfront property in Arizona. No agency can be successful without good community partnerships, and you are absolutely right. Well, I'm really happy to hear you say that. And, you know, there's also, you know, no matter, there should be, for instance, to there should be off-site education going on in order to train a local young men and women in the emergency medical services so that you can have the fire department be representative of the people that it serves, that the ambulance drivers can be represented, the paramedics can be representative of the people that we that they serve. And, you know, you're talking about middle-class wage and salary jobs. It is just deplorable in Ferguson where you have 
black youth have to get in the bus and get in their car and drive by these buildings, the police department, the fire department, that their parents are paying for, going out into the county, working for a minimum wage job that has no benefits, no pensions, and no no middle-class salary. That is totally deplorable. So the community, like you said, has a responsibility, and they have the ability to make change. Police are civil servants. The people are the boss. They are employees and hirees. And that type that relationship needs to be reestablished so that everybody can move forward in in concert. Yeah, for example, is there a, a, a police explorers post in, in Ferguson that you're aware of? Well, there's not an explorer post, but I know what you mean. Uh what we have here, we have retirees in the police department and also in the fire department that have set up classes in different uh, environments where they are bringing in young people and training them in the emergency medical services, like I mentioned, too. And there's also there was uh, a program in order to uh, go after children, high school students, and try to entice them and coming into the police department and get involved in those ride-alongs like you made mention. Yeah, and, and see, and you're, and you're hitting on the very essence of what people talk about doing, and that's community policing. That's what it's all about. You you have community members like yourself and other retirees and from public safety that have actually taken the bull by the horns. You're mentoring the youngsters and preparing them for for future service. Because as I said, I mean, what better place to recruit members of an agency than people that live there and 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 have a vested interest in that community? You are certainly going to protect that community. You're going to know. You're going to know the, the candlestick maker, the, the postman, the, the the guys that need some guidance, the teachers, everyone. And, and that's what it's all about. And I think the model that you're using is what a lot of agencies are dying to have, and that is an active community that says, look, we're going to work with you. We're going to hold you accountable, but we're also going to work with you to make sure that you get good recruits, that you, you have a pipeline of of guys and girls that want to serve in in various uh, capacities. And that, like you said, it builds your community because you now you've got good wages and, and good opportunity for advancing those things. I think it's great, and I, and I wish you yeah. a lot of success. Yes, you're absolutely right. you got good people that's making wages. They're buying houses. They're keeping the grass cut. They're keeping the roof prepared on their house. That way the community don't go down. And uh, children will stay there in the community rather than moving out to carry on what their parents have worked very hard to establish. So I appreciate the show, and I'm, I'm going to get off here and let you guys get back to your program. And if there's a way oh, that thank you, the and, and also if there's any way, and, and uh, Pastor, I don't know how this works, but if there's any way that you could leave your information with the producers, I would love to follow up with you just to see how you're coming along in your endeavors. Well, if the producer want to put me on, you know, off the air, I will give them my email address where you can get a hold of me. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I'll, I'll make sure I can get him to do that and uh, I'll take you off the air there to get with you, and uh, we'll get a chance to do just that. Just a second. Really appreciate a, your comment. I Thank question. you so much. I have a question to ask before you get off the, before you get off the air, sir, and that's, it's actually a question I'm posing to everyone that's been online, and that is – is there some way that the department should also be held accountable 
was thinking about the Baltimore police officers who were arrested, and they just appointed a judge to hear uh, and cover the trial. But shouldn't the department be held liable for these actions as well, or is that something that is already in place and I'm not aware of? Well, in a sense, the agency is being held accountable by the fact that they're bringing criminal charges and also that the city has paid out a settlement. And also now you have the Department of Justice looking at patterns and practices. So in a way, that's I guess that's the way of saying we see that there are some issues from top to bottom that are not being addressed appropriately, and we want to help you fix it. And by the way, while we're fixing it, um, we're going to look at all aspects of this, from the civil rights side of it, from the criminal side of it, and, and those types of things. But I, I also think that uh, part of that whole accountability piece, too, has to come by look at the, number one, how safe is the city empirically, but what is the perception of safety and service in the city as well? And those are two separate things that also add that other element of accountability that I think every department uh, must have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's very it's very interesting to note that inside of this, that, that I mean, there's been very great discussion here, and I think that uh, the key thing that we find out that there has to be involvement, and there has to be a bridge there. I think there has to be a deliberate attempt there, not one that you know. It's, it's interesting. We talk about citizen review committee. Uh, you know, citizen. Uh, uh, you know, citizens being able to come together and make suggestions, recommendations, review, and those things. And I think that you know, people have to be empowered to understand that they, that number one, they need to be permitted to do that, and they need to be empowered to understand uh, the fact that uh, that they have a right to. They they should have a right to be a part of that process. And I think there's a lot to happen with that inside of that. So uh, having said that, we're coming up, uh, we're about 50 minutes over, but that's absolutely all right. But I definitely like to have some closing remarks by the two of you and uh, everything. So I don't know which one of you would like to go first, but uh, some closing remarks. I'd like to say that I appreciate all the comments. I appreciate the callers um, because it's added something to what we've all had on our mind and things that we need to bring out about what's happening in our community, what's happening in our nation, what's happening in this world. Um, I am very concerned about the accountability vision. I know uh, having been an executive leader over a number of years, I I would have to be accountable to the lowest men on my total pole. If they committed an act that was inappropriate and out of order, I was held accountable. So, and I think about that with the department from the lowest men on the totem pole for doing something that's inappropriate and against others, that that top office should be held accountable. And I understand they're uh, conducting an investigation, but um, there has to be even more other than, okay, let's conduct an investigation. I mean, and that's something that I think the community at large would like to hear. Uh, I appreciate having Chief Blow online, and thank you again, Pastor T, for bringing this subject forward, and uh, I appreciate being here to join the subject. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Chief? Yes, sir, and, and again, I'd just like to echo Dr. Douglas's comments. This has been a, an amazing discussion today, and thank you so much for, 
for having me, and it's always a pleasure to to have a discussion with with all of you. And uh, and, I, and I would just say that we see now that the times are demanding that uh, law enforcement continues to metamorphosize. Um, you know, things that people used to do in terms of of safety and tactics back in the 60s and 70s and 80s are are either antiquated or they're outdated or they're just plain unacceptable. And so especially now that we're in an age of, of videos and, and, and instant information, um, it, it just is another challenge that uh, law enforcement is going to have to rise to. I, As a former member of the profession, I think that certainly there are a lot of talented people serving the communities that are certainly capable of rising to that challenge. But most importantly, uh, I'm just very encouraged by what I heard from the caller from Missouri and the actions that they're taking in Ferguson. That probably puts a bigger smile on my face than the profession. I've worked in the profession and worked around a lot of communities. But just to hear that there are boots on the ground and there are folk that are really committed to making a change, uh, I think between the agencies uh, making changes and continuously looking for opportunities to revamp and renew and the community efforts that I just heard about in Missouri. I think eventually we're, we're going to get to a, a better place. We we have a long way to go, but, but certainly this gives me a lot of hope. And thank you again for having me. Absolutely. And what a show that we've had tonight. It's been a great show. It is one that shows us that when we begin to measure whether or not Polish community relationships are getting uh, better or they're uh, growing further apart, I think once again it becomes a matter of perspective. And I think that in many cases we've seen uh, some great steps that are in progress. What we have to understand is this, that are we really seeing that the problem is getting worse because, in fact, we're made more aware of it in this world of instantaneous news and social media and the ability to report right away? Or are we actually getting worse? Could it be the fact that because now that it's now more openly in the public and those type things, that these are the conversations that are now being created as a result of us now being in the know? What is it that we can all depend on? We can depend on three things. Number one, we can depend on the fact that the more that we're educated about the system and about how it works, the more we're able to be able to contribute to fixing a system that may need some fine-tuning. The second thing we know is this, is that nothing will happen unless we begin to make it happen, that we all bear responsibility inside of making our, our communities stronger communities. And when we say communities, we cannot have a community without law enforcement. So there is a need to have that dialogue. And the third thing that we do know is this is that this is no isolated incident, that there's a culture, a culture that must be created, one that goes back to understanding the purest meaning of protecting and to serve, the purest meaning of understanding the fact of the honor that goes into being a law enforcement officer, and yet the respect that they also need from us as citizens as well. I believe that as we continue to take suggestions and continue to work toward solutions, continue to work for, uh, toward improving the technology of law enforcement and improving trainings, I believe that as we begin to continue to empower our community, our constituencies, and different ones about how it is that we should interact and those things that should happen, 
I believe that we can be partners together in having safer communities. I believe that today has been a very well-invested time, uh, nearly two hours of dialogue about a very important subject matter. But I believe that at the end of the day, that unless we're willing to stay committed to the cause, it will become only a page of history that we talked about what happened. At the end of our time together, I hope that we will be talking about the changes that we have seen. And those changes have happened because of the fact that we've been committed to the cause. That's where we are each and every Monday night here on Hope and Healing, A Journey to Wholeness. We're talking about committed to the cause. We believe that our communities are torn by violence, our families are destroyed by violence, and our faith is tested by violence. But it's incumbent upon each and every one of us that we will address this violence. And not only will we address this violence, but we'll address this violence through reaching across the aisle, reaching to our brothers, answering that question, am I my brother's keeper? And when we can answer that, I believe that we will find those solutions that we need in order to have healthier and safer communities. And this is J.R. Thicklin. Until next time, we are going to bid you a great night. And remember, there is no excuse for domestic violence. Join us again next week, 9 o'clock Eastern Time, 8 o'clock Central, 7 o'clock in the uh, Mountain Time Zone, 6 o'clock in the Pacific, and wherever you may be around the globe for Hope and Healing, our journey to wholeness. We look forward to being back with you again on next week. Have a great evening. And until that time, I bid you a safe good night. Radio. My name is Bernadette Stannis, and you know me as Thelma from the TV show Good Times. And I am hanging out with Tony on the soul of American Radio.
Let him drive. I just wanna be 